You're listening to This Nazarene Life, stories of young Nazarene clergy and their role models. Today's episode is sponsored by the Nazarene Student Center at the University of Oklahoma. Committed to sharing Christ's love with the students at OU, the OUNSC is meeting them wherever they are. For more information about the Nazarene Student Center at OU, or to have them come speak to your group, visit OUNSC.org or search for them on social media at the OUNSC. Today on the podcast, we have Reverend Chris Nafis, pastor of Living Water Nazarene in San Diego. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Britt Bullerjack, and I'm here with my guest, Pastor Chris Nafis. Chris is the pastor and church planter at Living Water Church of the Nazarene. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So the first question I ask everybody is, how did you end up in the Church of the Nazarene? Uh, well, I can only say that God put me in this church, I guess. Um, I didn't grow up Nazarene. Uh, I didn't go to any Nazarene schools, even after I became Nazarene. And I don't really know anyone in the Nazarene church except people that I've met since I've become a pastor, really, since I was on my way, I guess. Um, But I'm here. I literally wandered into a tiny church of the Nazarene when I was in college. Um, I grew up, I was baptized Catholic. My mom uh, was Catholic and began attending evangelical churches when I was little. Um, Grew up mostly at a Calvary Chapel, um, which is like a big non-denominational church. Uh, There's a lot of them around and uh yeah i kind of had had a call from god in the ministry and uh went to azusa pacific to study biblical studies and just just sort of see what was going to happen there and as i started studying scripture i kind of became a little disillusioned with the way that i had been taught to read the bible Mm. in my church i was a little frustrated with some of the ways that uh, it had been presented to me i felt like was missing a lot and focused on a lot of the wrong things and so I kind of got a little disillusioned, and I, I took an intentional break from church. I stopped going. I was, you know, I was at a Christian school, so we we're at chapel all the time and stuff. And stopped going to church though. After a couple of years, decided it was about time for me to start going back. And I started thinking about it. And I only had a couple criteria: I wanted to go to a church that was close enough that I could walk to it, and I wanted to go to a small church because the church I grew up at was was essentially a mega church. And um, you know, I thought about it for a long time. I didn't do anything about it. Went to a concert at the park at like a city hall event in Azusa, and someone was handing out flyers for a church. And I said, all right, well, I guess I'll, I'll try this church. And I went on the, the, the following Sunday, a couple of days later, I went looking for it. And I drove around and drove around. And I could not find it. I drove around <laughs> neighborhood after neighborhood, and I looked everywhere. And I couldn't find this church. And I was getting ready to give up. And I drove by. Not the church I had a flyer for, but a different church that had a big sign that said service was starting at 1030, I think it was. And I said, well, I'm ready for church. I might as well go somewhere because I can't find this other church. And I went in. turned out to be a Nazarene church. I didn't know that. Um, There are about 13 people in the church. And all of them, except for one, I think, were over 60 or 65. And they about dropped dead when... I walked in at like 20 years old, uninvited, not, you know, I don't think they had had a guest in quite a while, Um, but they welcomed me like I was family and um, I stayed. Yeah, I went to that church for a number of years. The pastor who was super old, kind of a Baptist pastor actually, who had somehow gotten credentialed in the Nazarene church, um, retired and they let me as like a 21 year old run services and I preached my first sermon there. And uh, they just, they became my family. And so I felt like I had been sort of adopted into the church. And so here I am, Nazarene. That's awesome. I love that. Um, kind of tell me about your calling. How did you end up in ministry? Um, I, I never thought about ministry growing up. No one in my family had ever been in ministry, at least that I know of, um, my family went to church, but it was the sort of thing where my mom kind of dragged us all to church, and we went late and left early, and didn't, you know, we knew people in church, but really only people that we knew outside of church, like people that we played sports with or from school or whatever, and uh, and so you know it wasn't really 
you know, as I kind of looked at what the possibilities of my life would look like, you know, becoming a pastor was never on the radar at all. Mm. Um, I thought I was going to be an engineer. I was really good at math and science and like tinkering with things and fixing things. And so I thought that's the route I was going to go. But I had kind of a, I mean, it's almost a stereotypical call experience at a camp. Um, I went to this camp called Campus by the Sea out on Catalina Island off the coast of Los Angeles. And I went there for a number of years. And one of the years I went there for high school camp, I just had this overwhelming sense of calling during, it was during a, uh, during a sex talk, actually, a talk <laughs> on abstinence that I had heard year after year. And it was like the third year I'd heard the same exact talk on the same night of camp. I can't explain it. It was like, it was, you know, it was, again, nowhere on the radar, but somehow... I just got this overwhelming sense. It wasn't like a voice or something, but just I just knew that I was supposed to work for God, basically, work in ministry. And I didn't really know what to do with it. Um, it was truly surprising to me, and, and it lasted long enough that I couldn't deny it. And um, I went home. I didn't know how anyone was going to respond because I hadn't, you know, I had already been looking at schools for engineering and stuff, and um, I think I was a junior in high school. I didn't know how anyone was going to respond. My parents, I, I didn't know if they would be happy or not. I thought they probably wouldn't be that happy. Not that they would be upset with it, but just that it would be sort of derailing the life that had been planned for me or that I had planned. Uh, when I went back, I told people I felt very supported by family and friends. And uh, yeah, that calling got sort of channeled and funneled along the way um, at APU, which is where I went to college sort of theological revolution that I went through and, and sort of just everything I thought I knew and understood was kind of thrown up in the air and mm-hmm. built from scratch. Built, I don't know if built's the right word because it's still not really, you know, stable. But um, I, got, I got involved with um, some homeless outreach ministries and had some really uh, challenging professors that, that sort of challenged me to look at the world and scripture in, in different ways than I had grown up doing it. It felt a real draw towards working with people who are on the margins and oppressed and poor and struggling through life. And that was where I kind of felt my calling guided. Mm. And I didn't know what that would look like. I didn't think it would be in the church. Um, so it was hard for me still to imagine myself as a pastor. Um, over time, I don't know, I, I graduated. I didn't really know what to do. I ended up taking a year away from school, trying to figure it out, mm. um, decided I needed to go to seminary, applied to Duke and got in most, a lot of the, a lot of the reading I had done, a lot of the, the books that had been written that were really influential to me had been written by a faculty at Duke and I was really kind of honored to get in there and went, went there and, and there had some experiences that sort of narrowed it into pastoral ministry and that mm. this work needs to be done in the church and this is where my calling is. Yeah, so it's kind of interesting how God sort of pushes you little by little, like kind of redirects you little by little. But in some sense, like I feel like my whole life since that Thursday evening sex talk, I've been sort of trying to follow that calling that I haven't had an experience in such a strong way since then. Um, But in some way, it seems like God's been sort of nudging me in different directions all along the way. And uh, here I am. Can you tell me more about that sense that maybe what you were going to end up doing wasn't a traditional pastor role in a traditional church? I hear that a lot, um, especially from theology students lately. And I'm just wondering if you can kind of unpack that feeling for me. Why do you feel like what you were called to wasn't a traditional church setting? Um, I think because it was such a, I had such a strong developing heart for people outside of the mainstream. And, you know, this was all happening at the same time that I had become sort of disillusioned with the church in general. Um, I grew up at a church where, what, and this is, I was looking forward to this, but most Sundays we would hear either about a very certain kind of apologetics that was about sort of uh, debunking evolution or, you know, th- like that kind of stuff, or, you know, almost an obsession with revelation and sort of end times theology and and what's going to happen and sort of trying to find scripture happening in world events around us. And so that was like what it meant to be a Christian to me. And that was exciting for me at the time when I was in high school and got into the left behind books and all that kind of stuff. And as I began to actually study the scriptures and to see that really God has a heart for people who are hurting and God wants 
to make sure that there's justice for those who are um, on the bottom ends of society and, and struggling in the community that we're supposed to be a you know communal people that takes care of one another. I, I thought I, I just didn't have any model for that in the church. And so where I saw that work being done was primarily in the nonprofit world. And so mm. I thought, well, like, that's what I want to do. And that's where it happens. And so that's, that's probably where I'll end up. It wasn't really an intentional thing. It was just sort of an, a set of assumptions, I guess, that I was making, partly based on what was modeled for me. I remember going back on my, my home, my, the church I grew up on, I went to their website once when I was in college, just to, out of curiosity, because they had a list of all of the ministries that they did, and there was probably close to a hundred different things on this list, and not one of them had anything to do with helping people who were needy in the community. Like not one. They were all there. There's some, you know, evangelism stuff. There's mission stuff. There was, you know, apologetic stuff. You know, but it was, you know, there was stuff for the troops. But there was nothing about caring for the least of these. And so that's what I, you know, that's what I grew up with in church. And so I just didn't. I think. Maybe that's part of I'm processing here and in, in, in process of talking to you. But maybe that's part of what happened that during my later years at Azusa and during my time at Duke was I began to form a, you know, began to understand and imagine what caring for the poor could look like within the church instead yeah. of just outside of it. And I just didn't, had no concept of that before. Yeah. Oh, it's fascinating stuff. So, so kind of continue that journey. You, you ended up at Duke for seminary. And then what happened? So I went to Duke for a couple reasons. One, because I, I thought it was, you know, a really good school. Two, because there were some intentional communities that I had heard about or up and around Duke. And um, I had a really tough time at Duke when I first got out there. Um, I had a, a really terrible first year. Mm. Some weird things happened. Um, you know, I was I had some of my stuff stolen. My car got hit in the middle of the night. I had a, a friend make a suicide attempt. and. Mm. I had another, my roommate died mysteriously in his sleep and I just had all, so I, and it was like a big adjustment culturally to go from Southern California to the Southeast, you know, North Carolina is a very different place than Southern California. I always thought I didn't really fit in in Southern California, like I was kind of a weird Southern Californian. Then I went to Duke and I realized that I am like a, a walking stereotype of like a Southern California boy. And so, um, so, you know, part of it was a lot of sort of learning about myself, but I went there and I did, you know, some some what they call field education, uh, where I, I served in church, a church out there and served in a couple other placements. You know, I, there was one moment in particular in in terms of my calling where I was at this rural church in North Carolina, which is a whole another set of stories. I had been praying about like what's next from you know what where where is my life going like what what kind of ministry am I supposed to end up in? And I had you know Duke is very church focus like things happen in the church and they, they really want to be a part of the church and there are other mm -hmm. seminaries that are you know on the cutting edge of academia that want to be sort of a critique from outside the church and Duke very intentionally doesn't want that and mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of sensed in the classes and in the faculty and the students and so I had kind of had that sort of push into the church as part of my education there and started thinking through it and and you know, there's this moment where, you know, this is a rural North Carolina church where everyone's up on stage, you know, the pastors are up on stage. And so I'm up on stage in like a row, which was super weird for me. <laughs> and the other pastor was there, the senior pastor. And he kind of looked at me in the middle of the service, like at an awkward time and said, like, you, you're supposed to be serving in the church. And it was just like this weird, I've just been thinking about it. I hadn't talked to him about it. And it was one of those moments where I was like, all right, that's that is where I'm supposed to be going, and I started to think about it more seriously. Um, I did at Duke, so I, I, you know, at the time, I had, my only experience with the Nazarene Church was in this tiny 13-person Azusa, super old Church of the Nazarene that had a Spanish congregation attached to it that I had gotten to know just a little bit. I kind of got brought into the, under the wing of some Nazarenes at Duke. There, there's sort of a a few of us that are up there. It seems like at any given time, and Todd Mayberry, who's the the registrar at the time, was running this little house church. I think you had Megan Pardue on the show. She's now the pastor of that church. We met there, actually. Um, so I, I started attending that church eventually. So, you know, so that kind of firmed up, and I got a local license there. And, you know, that was kind of part of my Nazarene journey, which was very sparse until I sort of jumped into actual ministry in a church of the Nazarene when I came to San Diego. Mm. Well, tell me about that transition. How did you end up at Living Water? Well, it was a step in between, I guess. I 
Um, I graduated from Duke. My wife and I, my wife, we got married. Uh, she had moved out from Grand Rapids where she went to school, and she was a, she was a nurse, and she lived in Durham with me for a year. Not with me, but next, you know, down the street from me for a year. And, uh, and we, I graduated. We got married. We decided, we were trying to decide where do we go. We had no idea where to go. I did not like it in Durham, and I knew I wanted to leave, and that was about it. Right. Um, and so we decided – you know, well, let's start in places that we think we'd like to live that are close to our families, but aren't too close to our families. So mm. at the time my family lived in, um, basically in LA and hers lived in, uh, Wisconsin. And so we looked in Minneapolis and San Diego. We got no hits on jobs for either of us in Minneapolis. Mm. And both of us got, um, you know, job offers in San Diego. And so we decided to come out and I ended up at Southeast Church of the Nazarene, which is a small, working poor church in a, in what the inner city of San Diego in one of the roughest neighborhoods in San Diego. And which is exactly where I wanted to be. And, um, as part of that, I, I was kind of torn between two churches. There's also another church called mid city church of the Nazarene, which is a really interesting church in city Heights, which is the, another, um, one of the, the lower income and rough areas of San Diego. And, that, and they're in the middle of like, I think the most diverse, place in the United States in terms of language and stuff. There are all kinds of refugee communities that live in City Heights in San Diego. And so their church had like six or seven different language groups that met as as different churches meeting in the same facility. So I wanted to kind of be a part of both of those things. And what we worked out was that I would be associate pastor at Southeast and I would be a part of Mid-City's homeless outreach ministry in downtown San Diego. And I did that every week. And so for six years, that was my role, always working side jobs and, and trying to figure out what the other half of my bivocational ministry would look like. Right. Kind of the idea Mid-City had was planning a church downtown San Diego out of that ministry. And so I came and that was the idea is that maybe I would plant a church down there. Pretty quickly was like, there's no way I can plant a church here. Every time I get to know someone, they disappear after three weeks because it was all people living on the streets and just very transient people that were coming through. And so I did that for, for, you know, six years. And towards the end of that, I was getting ready to be ordained and starting to think about, you know, something was coming next that I had more to offer than I was giving at Southeast. And that was sort of time for me to start looking at the next thing. Yeah. And um, I, I, my DS was kind of shopping me around. I think I was doing pulpit supply around the district. And I interviewed for a position at a, a senior pastor position on the district that we decided to, to withdraw from, and I, I don't know if they would have hired me anyway, um, and began to think about maybe church planting for the first time. I was kind of keeping an eye on the Midwest because my wife's family lives out in the Midwest, and just thinking, like, what would it look like to go out there? I was looking around in Chicago, and I noticed that the Chicago DS was all big on church planting, and mm-hmm. they were going to try to plant all these churches, and I thought, oh, maybe I can go to Chicago and plant a church. And I thought, well... I don't know anyone in Chicago. I've only really been there like once. Like, why would I go all the way to Chicago to plant a church when I live in San Diego? I I like it here. I have like support, you know, like why wouldn't I think about planting a church in San Diego? Yeah. And went to assembly, which is the assembly that I got um, ordained in. And the whole focus was on church planting. And so I started thinking about it a little bit more. Mm. Mentioned it to our senior pastor at Southeast um, just to just to kind of get a feel for what he would think about it, and he you know he's very supportive about everything. Just an incredible pastor, uh, Steve Rodehaver, and he was like, "Well, let's pray about it." And within a week, someone died who had been to Southeast one time in their life and left the church almost forty thousand dollars. And we were like, "Okay, <laughs> maybe this isn't just like a crazy idea." And so we prayed about it, went through a discernment process, and decided that we should plant a church and sort of through the same discernment process decided it should be downtown in East Village, which is where Living Water is now. And so we started recruiting a team, uh, went through some training and sort of set a schedule. And uh, last April, we had our first open worship service here in San Diego at Living Water Church of the Nazarene. And uh, so I guess it's been about 10 months now and uh, we're doing okay, still here. And it's funded by uh, Southeast and by the, the Southern California District and, you know, God's working amongst us. And so that's how I'm here. So we kind of made our own our own spot here. <laughs> that's awesome. So cool. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm fascinated by the, the process of that. If a person is out there who's thinking about church planting, kind of tell me about 
the process and the timeline, what it takes? Like, can you explain what it looks like to plant a church? I don't know if I can. I think it looks it looks a lot different depending on context. I go back and forth between thinking what we're doing is really very unique and no one else is doing this sort of thing, and then thinking like, no, it's really not. Everyone's doing the same thing. <laughs> we're planting a church primarily among people who are on the streets in San Diego. So like our homelessness is a huge issue, and East Village is a small neighborhood in downtown San Diego where they're – well, the police have recently started sweeping people even more than they have been. Um, but there are, you know, between 800 and 1,000 people sleeping on the streets every night oh, here wow. in this spot. And it's also the most expensive place in San Diego to rent a place to live. So mm. it's kind of this weird dynamic of like very wealthy, up and coming part of town. They're building condos everywhere. There's like 30 condos being built in this like 10 by 10 block radius. And it's also where the homelessness is sort of the height of homelessness is right here where we are. And mm-hmm. so we had been doing this homeless outreach ministry for, you know, it had been going on long before I went there for like 20 years. So we had a good name. People knew the Nazarenes. They liked the Nazarenes. They knew we cared about the, the people who are on the streets and hungry. And so the, the groundwork had been laid in interesting ways, but only in that half of the community. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we, we, I guess to go back to your original question, we, I gathered a team primarily from Southeast. I started pitching the idea to the church. I laid out a vision for it and had a special night where I presented, like, this is what, what we feel like God is calling us to. Here is essentially how we're going to end up doing it. And I had, I organized our uh, season of preparation around the church season. So I started this sort of announcement and recruitment process during Advent. Mm. And then I wanted to have a team recruited by uh, Ash Wednesday. And we began meeting um, as a church plant team during Lent. And we, we met and planned and prepared. And then the plan was on Easter Sunday, that would be our last Sunday at our church at Southeast. And then we'd begin worshiping as a church plant team after that. And then oh, wow. at Pentecost, we were going to have our first open worship service. Hmm. Um, what it turned out to be was that we started having these little services with just our team, but we were already inviting people. And it seemed kind of silly to be like, well, we're kind of open, but we're kind of not. And so we just had a meeting and said, oh, let's just say that we're open, you know, and everyone can come. So we just sort of opened it like that which i don't think is what you're supposed to do (laughs) our training told us to do you're supposed to have this big event so we just did i mean you just do it it's one of those things where it's like you plan and plan but you just have to like you just have to step out in faith you just have to do it and it's like both easier than you think and harder than you think because you realize like you you know you get to the point where i'm in this church service that didn't exist before right no one was meeting there's nothing happening and you look around and you're like, all we really needed was like a place to meet. It's nice to have a microphone, but we probably could have done it without it. And like people, and that's it. And, you know, there's all these other complexities sort of surrounding it. Um, and so in some sense, it's like, it's very easy. Like you just, you know, gather some people who want to worship together, um, especially people who have a sense of calling and mission and people who are sort of flexible and creative Um, It helped for us. Our church plant team was very diverse in terms of age, experience, race, and gender, everything. Like we had like part of what we want to do here is be a church that everyone feels welcome at. And that can be a sign of sort of the reconciliation that happens in the kingdom of God Mm. when when we are sort of under the lordship of Christ and those those barriers get broken down. And so I don't think we've quite achieved that yet because we haven't really broken into the higher end of the community here in terms of economic scale. But we had people who were healthy and sick. We had people who were in their late 50s and 60s and people who were we a 19-year-old who was in junior college and grad, had just finished youth group at Southeast. And we had people who were dying of cancer on our team. We had people who were homeless on our team. We had people who were living in low-income housing and then we had people who are, were, you know, young professionals, you know, a couple of years out of college. And so we have this very robust group that I think everyone could kind of come and feel like, oh, I, I can belong here. We have a great team. And so it takes a lot of the burden off of me to have just some awesome people to work with. Um, but you just, I don't know, you just do it, I guess. That's, that's, <laughs> that's the essence of church planning. You just do it and then you figure it out as you go and you adjust and you stay flexible and, um, and then you keep doing it. It's great. I don't know if that's going to help anybody else, but that's kind of... <laughs> no, it's awesome. It's awesome. So kind of tell me about living water. What does it look like? What is an average Sunday like there? 
It's an interesting place. So we we are in a, like we share part of an old warehouse with um, a pedicab company and a sign company. We share a bathroom with them. It's like an interesting space. It kind of has like a cool old warehouse vibe to it, um, and and you know, but it's small and and cluttery and dirty. And we always you know we have a lot of people that are bringing stuff in with them because they carry everything with them all the time. So mm. we have places for people to store stuff and we're always sort of fighting an uphill battle uh, about like trying to keep the place reasonably clean. Um, but on a typical Sunday, we, we have an afternoon service um, or a late afternoon service, early evening service. We uh, invite people to start coming in at 4.30 and we, we want people to come, help set up, help clean up, help get ready for service together. And we see that as a way to involve people in uh, service and fellowship at the same time mm-hmm. uh, where we're, you know, anyone can come, you know, pretty much no matter what your skill level is, as long as you're able-bodied and help set up chairs or, or help, you know, wipe down tables or whatever. And so people come and do that. And we start our service at five and we have very robust services, which our mother church had as well. So we have a service that involves scripture reading. We follow the lectionary and do all the readings from the lectionary every week. We have music, which is led by uh, a couple of our one, one or another of our church plant team members. Um, we have a time of open prayer and time to share prayer requests. You know, we pray the Lord's prayer every week. Uh, I, I give a message every week and we take communion every week. And so we have and then we eat dinner together. Um, we have a, a, a sheet where people sign up to cook dinner and uh, they cook for the, for the whole community. You know, we've had a wide array of people cook for us. People who don't have kitchens or homes have cooked dinner for the church on numerous occasions. And, you know, it's another way to bring people into service. And so kind of our, our philosophy is that, you know, we're here to try to make disciples and encourage people to step into a life of discipleship. And so we think if people engage in that, in, in worship, in community formation and in service, then they will see growth in their life and they'll see themselves sort of drawn into this life of discipleship. And so we have a lot of people that come in and say, hey, is there anything I can do? And our philosophy is sort of like the answer is always yes to that question. We will find something for you to do. Even if even if it's something menial, like we, you can come and work with us here. Yeah. Um, and we're focused on community formation, which we see happening in our small groups and Bible studies, which we have during the week. Worship is an emphasis of ours. And so it's great. You know, we have a lively bunch. People are very engaged with one another. See people talking to each other that probably, you know, outside of the church would never talk to each other, never encounter each other. And um, it's a cool place to be. It's also interesting. Lots of unexpected things happen because we are in like this place where there are a lot of people that are on heavy and crazy drugs. And there are a lot of people that struggle with, you know, behavioral health problems. And so, it's fairly often that our service or our small groups or whatever get interrupted by someone coming in and doing something strange. One of our, we met at a, at a park for a while <laughs> when we were without space. One of the guys who's become one of our key people, the, the way we met him was I was preaching and he came up wandering up at the park, very intoxicated, and started sort of engaging with me in dialogue while I was preaching, which no one else really, well, more people than you think do that, but it's not intended <laughs> to do that. And I was talking about baptism, and he was saying that he wanted to get baptized and stuff. And so I, you know, I kind of said, "Oh, we'll talk about it later." And then I didn't know this, but after that encounter, he went behind me, took his shirt off, and did push-ups behind me for the rest of the service. And so I have this like, <laughs> you know, drunk guy doing push-ups behind me for the, you know, for like a third of our service. I didn't even know this until like weeks later, actually, when they told me that that happened. I don't know why no one told me, but he's now become one of our most regular people in the church. Still haven't got him baptized. We're working on it. Still haven't got him all the way sober. We're working on it. But um, he feels like this is his community and his home and that he's loved here. So I could tell more stories like that, but leave it at that for now. Oh, no, please do. Do you have more stories? Oh, man, what other stories do we have? I don't know if there's another concise one that sort of sums it up like that we you know we had a guy come in for the first time and uh you know in the middle of my sermon just was sitting in the middle of of our pretty small space and just threw up everywhere in the- <laughs> so we you know we kind of stopped and everyone pitched in and helped clean up and then he threw up some more and it was just throw up everywhere throughout the whole service and I mean, it's it's just a regular occurrence that someone stands up and 
you know, responds to something I'm saying or raises hands or whatever. We have a big open sliding door that, um, oh, that's, it was a commercial loading dock, but now it's sort of a, a half wall that we open up a lot of the times to, to kind of be open to the street and, you know, all kinds of noise and stuff coming out of there and people yelling in. And, uh, I mean, it's just, it's hard to describe, you know, for like a podcast listener, but it's, there's just always something weird. Every, every sort of something weird happens. It's just a matter of like, what's it going to be this week? So. That's great. Can I, can I tell you about the, what the church is like during the week? You mentioned a couple things that you do during the week. What does your role look like during the week? Well, I am, I have, I don't even know what to call it. I, I essentially have like four vocations at the moment. So I mm. am in and out a lot. I'm very busy. Um, so the part of my journey, you know, to just share is, is kind of searching for this other half of the vocation. So I spent all this time and energy getting educated and getting really good education in, that would prepare me for ministry and then realize, well, now I have a ton of student loans. I'm prepared mm. to do ministry and the ministry I feel called to is never going to really pay me very much. Mm. Um, in fact, for most of my life, it hasn't even come close to covering my student loan payments. And so... You know, I, I've done all kinds of different things on that journey. I started out delivering pizzas, and then I got invited inexplicably to teach a class at Point Loma Nazarene University, which I did. And then I went back to delivering food after that. My wife and I started a farm and ran a farm for a year and then started, basically restarted the farm in a new location and ran farm for another year. And that was sort of my second vocation for a while. Wow. And then I went and got trained to become a chaplain, a hospital chaplain. I went mm. and did four units of CPE in a in a hospital system here in San Diego, which was super intense and really good training, both for my work in and out of the church. Mm. And so now I, I'm a per diem chaplain in one of the hospital systems here in San Diego. So I spend some time doing that. I've, I've been asked to teach a class again this semester at Point Woman Nazarene, so I spend more time than I wish I did doing that. Um, my wife works, and we have two little boys. Um, we have uh, my two-and-a-half-year-old named Alyosha, and we have a 10-month-old named Sam, you're good at math you'll realize that sam was born the same week that we planted our church and so or a week before plenty to do there so i take my turn in the child care so really i provide you know i I end up doing you know probably an average of 20 hours a week being primary caregiver at home and so i have all these different things i'm doing so i'm in and out a lot but we have some folks who volunteer and open up the church and so we have uh the building open kind of when we can and it's it's sort of a reprieve place for some of the people on the streets to come and find a quiet place to sit and read. And we have instruments. So some people like to come and mess around on the guitar or the drums or whatever. Mm. Um, and so that's kind of part of what we do. We have a, we have two small groups. We have a Wesley style small group that meets on Wednesday nights that we started kind of based on a need that we sensed that people needed to process what they were going through. Mm. We were trying to do Bible studies and just constantly getting derailed and interrupted by people who had legitimate things that they needed to process. They were like going through terrible things, living on the streets of San Diego and, you know, coming out of a terrible situation usually. And so we kind of saw this need to like, for people to talk about what they were experiencing and um, did some, you know, had someone, pitch doing like an AA style group where people could share and and talk about it. And so I started thinking about it and did some research and looked back at the groups that Wesley used to run in the very beginning of Methodism and what those groups looked like. And so we kind of started these groups based on those Wesley small groups back in the, and there were a few different kinds, but it's sort of a merger of, of the few. And so the, the basic question we ask at that small group is how is your life in God? And we give people you know, a few minutes to process it and to hear responses mm. from others in the group and kind of go around the room. There's no curriculum. It's just sort of a processing group. And then on Friday nights, we have a more traditional Bible study that we lead, which I've essentially turned into my Old Testament class uh, <laughs> at point, that I'm teaching at Point Loma. Is, you know, I'm, I'm double dipping there and teaching Old Testament for my Friday night Bible study. Uh, we also partner with a choir. Um, I met a, I went to a little homeless advocacy event down at a park about a block from our church and met this woman who's a professional jazz musician in San Diego, and she, she was telling me how she had this dream to start a choir for people who are on the streets. And I said, well, we have a place. You know, we're paying all this lease for this space, and it sits empty all the time. Like, if you want to start it, you can start it with us. And so she has started it, and that choir has gained national attention. They've been on KPBS and NPR and um, they've been covered by every news outlet in San Diego and a lot of news outlets elsewhere. 
Um, they've been asked to play with the San Diego Symphony, and they're wow. they're doing really like it has turned into a big thing. Um, and so that's that happens still at the church on Fridays. They rehearse, and then they have gigs all over town now. Wow. Um, so, and I'd like to get more things like that, but. Lots happening around the church. So always new things starting and old things, you know, ending or being revived somehow. Um, yeah, and you've only just begun, right? We've only just begun. Yeah, we've been here for about ten months, and it's kind of stressful to think like, well, what's going to happen next? We don't know, um, but it's kind of exciting at the same time. That's part of the, the church plant is like the stress of like, is anyone going to show up? <laughs> and then like, well, we can do anything. Like God could do anything here, and and it's this dual you know, sense of like dread of like, it's going to fall apart any moment now, mm. but the excitement of like, but this could be something truly wonderful that God like shows up and does big things. And so, you know, we pray for the latter and kind of expect the, the first to happen and uh, <laughs> allow God to surprise us with good things along the way. Yeah, that's great. So I kind of, you kind of mentioned the, the police moving people out more and more earlier in in our talk and I'm just wondering if you could talk about your interaction as a pastor with the community and kind of what's been happening there I've been kind of learning as I go um so our choir that's received all this attention has really jumped into some of the political um like the city politics in San Diego concerning this um just sort of how they really got involved was they had their first big performance, which they performed in, in front of a very, you know, jazzy, you know, high class audience of like 300. They sold out this place and had this huge performance. This is their first performance. Mm. And, um, you know, and so everyone was just so excited and on top of the world that they, you know, this thing that had been nothing is now, you know, they were beginning to get media coverage and stuff and it was just starting to explode. And we brought everyone back and most of the people in the choir were sleeping in front of the church. And, and there were a lot of the same people that were, you know, most of them, almost all of them were also coming to, to church. And so it was a lot of the same people. Um, they had been there before. We knew them. We just invited them to come in and come to church and sing with us. And, uh, and so we, you know, they all went back to their spot on the sidewalk, which was depressing enough to like give people a ride back to their spot on the sidewalk after this incredible performance in front of all these wealthy people. But the next day, the cops came at like 6.15 in the morning. The sun wasn't up yet. And they ticketed everyone on the sidewalk and arrested mm. another person that was there. So, and this isn't, this was like not an uncommon thing. Police in San Diego do this all the time. They ticket people for being on the sidewalk and they have different ways, you know, they've been sued for different ways that they do it. And they always find a sort of something to have as leverage to be able to ticket someone for being where they don't want them to be. Mm. And so they, they ticketed them all. But... You know, this was a group of people that had just been in virtually every media outlet in San Diego. And so now the police came and ticketed all those same people. So San Diego had been reading about all these people and this wonderful thing that was happening with the choir. And we witnessed how this ticket, which I think the tickets for are a little over $100 to pay. And, you know, the, you, you can deal with them, but it, it just like devastated everybody. So people who had been really thriving, like they had been getting along really well with each other, like people struggling with mental health issues have been feeling really good and positive on top of the world. And it just, it just like undercut all of it. And people mm. went, you know, it just, it just destroyed the, the heart of this whole group of people mm. and the media covered it. And so the, the San Diego Union Tribune, which is the main newspaper here in San Diego, sent a reporter out, they interviewed me about it. And I kind of described what happened. And um, the way the media sort of pitched the story, it was an interesting learning experience for me because I'm not media savvy at all. I don't know how to do any of this stuff. Mm. And so far, up until that point, all the media had just been very positive about the choir and everything that was going. And all of a sudden, the media got very critical. And they, they essentially put me um, in conversation with the media rep from the police department, mm. which I didn't know that, you know, I didn't know they were going to do that. And they made it seem like we had sort of been giving per permission to people to sleep in front of our church and that we had been sort of undermining the rules of the city. And they kind of, they painted a really bad picture of what we're doing. And suddenly the community scrutiny came down. I got a call from our landlord who had apparently gotten calls from, you know, property owners all around trying to get them to get rid of us. And so the, this media kind of, we saw the double edged sword of this media stuff come out. Um, but in the wake of that, the, the choir has become very active in advocating for 
compassionate policies from the city. Mm. They've brought a lot of attention to it because the media has been covering it so much here in San Diego that it's it's constantly in the spotlight. They performed at the inauguration of all the new city uh, government officials and got oh, wow. some attention there. They've been in front of the city council a number of times. And so we've kind of allowed the choir to be sort of the activist wing of what we're doing and, and kind of step back a little bit from it and try to refocus on what we're called to do as the church. But you know, we work so closely with them and we have so much crossover in terms of population with the choir that it still is sort of part of us that's that's sort of trying to advocate politically for the people who are on the streets who get pushed around. And we just see how, you know, these policies that don't get thought through very much by people who have homes uh, really devastate people. And so what happens in, in homeless encampments is people form communities and it's very dangerous. You're very vulnerable on the streets. People get robbed all the time. Mm essentially every person that's been on the streets that's been among us has been robbed and had all of their stuff taken multiple times in just the 10 months that we've been, been here. And, and when you carry everything you belong with you, think about medication, identification, like sleeping bags, you know, all kinds of stuff. If they, if they're able to get a computer or a phone or whatever, and all of it needs to be replaced. And when you don't have identification and you, you know, it's just, it's, it really tears you apart. So there's a lot of safety issues. We also had a serial killer killing people on the streets for a while back in June. We had someone come through and he killed three people on the streets in their sleep and was setting people on fire. And, and they eventually caught the guy. But it was just this, you know, like you can imagine what it's like to be living on the streets, scared about someone coming to murder you in your sleep, scared that the police are going to come and ticket you or arrest you or move mm. you along, scared that if you lose sight of your bag or let it wander too far away from your arm while you're sleeping, someone will almost certainly steal it. It's just a very vulnerable place to be. So people form these little communities to look out for each other and to, you know, stand watch for each other. And then a sweep comes in and disrupts the community and everybody falls into like the worst parts of themselves and the things they struggle with most and, mm. and they get scattered and, you know, eventually the communities reform somewhere else, doesn't do anything except make people who are already struggling to find a home have like a hundred extra dollars of debt, you know, all this emotional trauma and, you know, disrupted community and it just sort of sets everyone back. That's kind of how the city has approached homelessness so far in San Diego. And I think some things are beginning to change a little bit, but it's it's hard to watch. Yeah. So we've tried to at least enable a voice for that to happen and be wise enough that, uh, first of all, the church doesn't get sort of the worst of it because we're the ones that will lose our place mm -hmm. potentially if our landlord feels forced, you know, like he has to get rid of us. We're also going to have to find a new place pretty soon, which is going to be difficult because we have this reputation. Um, but also, you know, we have limited resources and limited people. And so we're really trying to stay focused on what we are, are as the church. So sort of to enable that, to be the hand of standing up for the poor and sort of a prophetic voice in the city and while at the same time maintaining our identity as the body of Christ here to worship and become disciples. And so that's been a challenge uh, and I'm, I'm learning as I go. We haven't done it well. I haven't done it well all the time, but I think we're doing better at it now. Yeah, you learn a lot of stuff when you're doing new things, I guess. I don't know. That's the other part about being a church planter that, that is interesting is you just learn how to do everything. You know, I didn't know anything about web design. Now I know how to create a website. I know anything about sound systems. Now I kind of know how to do the sound system. You know, I didn't, you know, I just, I've, everything has been from scratch. And so you have to learn how to, we're now organizing. So I'm learning all the paperwork and the stuff with organizing. And so, you know, I'll have learned a lot by the time we're done here. Um, and it's, again, it's the same thing where it's like, oh, I got to learn another new thing. But then it's kind of cool to be able to like, oh, now I know how to do that thing. And, uh, That's awesome. What, what's your favorite part about what you do? Um, I, so I really love seeing people connect as a community and learn how to love one another well. And so like the fav my favorite thing in our context is to see people who otherwise would remain isolated from one another to have barriers broken down and to have people find, you know, see the image of God in one another and mm. encourage one another and just have joyful time and fellowship together under the name of Christ. And so that's, that's my, that's my favorite thing is when I, last week I came before service and we had, we, we didn't have too many people here before the service, but you know, two of the guys were 
had never met before, but both of them had been coming for a little bit and they were sharing stories about their addictions and how they've been struggling with it and how they overcame this and that and, you know, where they had been and how they had worked and gotten to where they were. And another couple people were, you know, having conversation of, I don't remember what they were talking about, but they were just connecting on a deeper level. And, you know, again, people that weren't really connected before, but we're getting to know each other. And that's just while we're setting up the church, you know, it's just casual stuff. But because of what we're doing, because we have this communal identity as members of the body of Christ, as people seeking discipleship together, and because we're being formed by God in similar ways, um, you know, we can find the love of Christ in one another. You know, what we're studying encourages that in us. We're talking about the Sermon on the Mount right now and how the calling for us on the Sermon on the Mount is a communal calling. Like we can't do these things by ourselves, but yeah. when we learn to live together in that calling, it seemed absolutely impossible. How can you never be angry? You know, mm. how can you, how can anger be the same as, you know, murder? You know, how can we avoid anger that well? Well, you can't do it by yourself, but if we become a community that deals with conflict well, that learns to make peace with one another, that learns mm. to love one another, then, you know, you don't, you don't get angry with your brother or sister because as much as you used to, because everyone is responsible for that anger, not just the person who has the anger, but the whole community is responsible for it. And so mm. these things that seem impossible for us to do as we begin to live a life in God together, they become possible. And it's just really cool to see even glimpses of that beginning to happen. So that's my favorite. I love that. So what's the most difficult part about what you're doing right now? Um, we are stretched very thin as a family. You know, I mentioned I have, I essentially have four jobs right now and my wife works part. She, you know, even though she only works half time, she still makes the majority of our family income. And we have mm. two boys that are little that don't sleep through the night almost ever. You know, we are, we are like zapped of energy all the time. Mm. Um, and I, I'm struggling to find balance, to find times of rest, um, I had, I had, so for example, I had a Sabbath day that I had set aside The Wednesdays was going to be sort of family day and relax day and not going to work on, on Wednesdays. And then I took this point Loma position and now I have a class on Wednesday morning. So that's mm. kind of disruptive. And it's just, it's hard to find space because there's so much happening and being in a senior pastor position, I'm still learning how to do this, but there is just like a constant demand for your time. The needs just don't stop and there's always more that you can do. And so it's hard to find ways to sort of regulate that and to uh, make sure that you're taking care of yourself. And so, mm. you know, it's really, it's been hard for us. Like I'm, I'm worn out a lot and it's hard. It's probably even harder for me to see how worn out my wife is as she plays a supportive role in the church and works and is a primary childcare provider for our kids. And it's challenging. Um, and so like it, it, it almost it sometimes feels like this is like a very difficult stage in our life together as a family. But then at the same time, like it's also a very rich stage. Like there's so many beautiful things happening. I love everything that I do. Like I love the chaplain work that I do. I, I'm exhausted from it. You know, so my main most of my my most consistent shift is a Monday night shift. So coming off a Sunday night church service for like someone who's fairly introverted to like Monday night going and sitting with people who are dying is not, wouldn't be how I would choose probably to spend my time if I could, but it's so rich and meaningful and I have this host of experiences there. I'm teaching at Point Loma. I love it. You know, watching my boys grow up, it's, it's just amazing. Like there's so much growth and learning and everything I do, I feel like I learn so much and it's just so rich and I just want to hang on to every bit of it, but there's always like the next thing happening immediately. And so Again, like I feel so stretched, but I feel so full at the same time, um, and it just it's exhausting. So I think the hardest thing to do is for me is to find ways to rest, I guess. And I haven't figured it out yet. So I guess I'll keep listening to the podcast and see how others have figured it out. <laughs> um, well, you know, the last question I ask everybody is, what inspires you to stay in the Church of the Nazarene? What is it that's keeping you here? I don't feel like I chose the Church of the Nazarene. Mm. I feel like God put me in the Church of the Nazarene. And it's an interesting, you know, I kind of told part of that story already, but I I didn't church shop, 
you know, I didn't go around and look at doctrines and decide that this was the one I thought fit the best. Um, I had no connection to a denomination. I grew up at a non-denominational church and had no idea where to go. And, you know, I feel like God put me in this church. And it just so happens, you know, there's been all these coincidences along the way that, like, I was at a Wesleyan school. I don't know if I would have even articulated that before I went to seminary, but, you know, APU is a Wesleyan school, and, and so my theological training was kind of in the tradition. My, my most influential professor, who has been incredible to me, Craig Keene at Azusa Pacific, also Nazarene, didn't really make that connection until I'd been at this little church for a year. Um, you know, it just, it, the, the, the roots of the Church of the Nazarene are in the same places that I feel my passion. So, like, what, I, what we're doing in the church plant is a is very similar to what Brzee did in the in the very beginnings of the Church of Nazarene in Los Angeles, and that's yeah. not you know I didn't like look at what he was doing and say like I'm going to do the same thing. It just it just lines up because that's where what God has put in my heart and God has put me in the church that has roots in doing the same thing. And so mm. you know it, it doesn't feel at all like I've chosen the church, which I don't know maybe I should be Calvinist, but it doesn't feel like I have like. <laughs> you know, made this free will decision to, to join this church and to stay in this church. I feel like God has put me in the church and God has put me here for a reason. Mm. And so kind of stop saying this because every once in a while I get a sideways glance, but it's, you know, until they kick me out, I'm going to be Nazarene. People always say like, well, what are you doing? Then they're going to kick you out. I don't know what I'm doing, but I, I don't know. You know. I don't know anyone in the church. I don't have, I don't have networks in the church. I'm beginning to develop them here in Southern California district. Um, but I'm here because God put me here and I'm going to stay here until God or maybe the church puts me elsewhere, which maybe is that's the same thing in some ways. It's the church, the embodiment of the Holy Spirit. But until someone besides me decides that I don't belong in this church anymore, I'm going to stay here. Not because I want to or because I think it's a perfect church. I'm, I, you know, there are things I don't like and things I do like. And, but because God put me here and because God kind of created me for that church and the church for me. I think. That's great. If someone had a question for you about living water or they wanted to talk to you about church planting or San Diego, where can they reach you? Uh, you can check out our website, livingwaternazarene.com. Uh, you can also email me at chris at livingwaternazarene.com. Um, and, yeah, you should be able to find anything in one of those two places. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me.